Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Judge for Yourselves. For Easter Day, Sunday, April 12, 2009. Three years ago this January, I stood in front of my mother's casket at the Thomas Funeral Home in Fuquay, Varina, North Carolina a small town near Raleigh where our family moved in 1966. I twisted my neck so that my face would parallel hers. Hot tears streamed down my cheeks. My nose ran. My vision blurred. I caressed Mom's wrist, but it was cold and stiff. Thanks to the mortician, Mom looked far better in death than in her last years of life. She was a spitting image of her own mother, our family agreed. But I knew that her better-than-life appearance was partly a death-denying cultural contrivance, designed to dull my pain and distract my attention from the harsh reality that Mom was dead. No more Saturday morning phone calls to ask her about Duke Carolina basketball, no more annual visits for her May 20th birthday that often coincided with Mother's Day, and no more playing Scrabble in her tiny room. My mother's grandfather was a Presbyterian pastor in Columbiana, Ohio. She herself was the organist and choir director in her own church from 1967 to 1992, 25 years. Every Sunday morning for 80 years, Mom joined Christians across the last 2,000 years and from around the globe confessing the Apostles' Creed that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. I believe in the resurrection of the body and in life everlasting. So Paul wrote in the epistle for this week, 1 Corinthians 15:11, this is what we preach and this is what you believed. That's what my mom believed and that's what I wanted to believe that January afternoon beside her casket. I take odd comfort in knowing that long before our contemporary skepticism Plenty of people dismiss the idea of the resurrection of the dead in general, and of Christ's resurrection in particular. Unbelief is not the invention of Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, Daniel Dennett, and Christopher Hitchens. Only with our modern hubris, what the British historian E.P. Thompson referred to as the enormous condescension of posterity, could we congratulate ourselves that whereas illiterate peasants in 33 AD were so gullible that they did not understand that corpses don't rise from the dead, we today know better. The historical record shows that plenty of people disbelieved back then, including Jesus' own disciples. The doubt of Jesus' closest followers and the disbelief by many of their contemporaries read more like a no-spin zone than a propaganda ploy. 
They lend an air of authenticity to the original Easter proclamation. After the crucifixion, the followers of Jesus responded in fear, confusion, ignorance, and disbelief. The women who took spices and perfumes to the tomb expected to anoint a corpse, not to witness a resurrection. When Mary Magdala saw the empty tomb, she supposed that someone had stolen the body. John 20, verse 2, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. She wept and cried, They've taken my Lord away, and I don't know where they've put him. Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. When Mary Magdala and several other women subsequently told the disciples that they had seen the risen Lord, Mark 16:11 reports they did not believe it. Luke renders it even more bluntly in Luke 24:11. They did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. That first Sunday night, the eleven disciples cowered behind locked doors. It was not unreasonable for them to fear for their own lives. Later, two witnesses reported their encounter with Jesus to the eleven, but we read in Mark 16, they did not believe them either. And Jesus rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe. Thomas remained the most famous doubter, of course. Well, in what might have been his last resurrection appearance, we read in Matthew 28, verse 17, some doubted. But then something happened. Luke writes that after Jesus suffered, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive, Acts 1-3. Somehow, way, the confusion of these unschooled and ordinary men gave way to their bold conviction in Acts 2-32, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. When commanded by the religious authorities to stop their preaching, Peter and John replied in Acts 4.20, We cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. They claimed to have eaten with the resurrected Jesus, and that many witnesses could attest to his public appearances. 1 Corinthians 5.5-8 And so, Acts 4.33, with great power, the apostles continued to continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. All of this, mind you, would have screeched to a halt if someone had produced a body. Some people believed this apostolic message, but others, many others, mocked and scoffed. The religious authorities were, quote, greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead, Acts 4.2. In addition to a burgeoning number of converts, their public witness produced, produced municipal violence and severe persecution that would last for three centuries. 
Stephen was stoned to death in Acts 7, and a general persecution in Jerusalem scattered the believers in Acts 8. King Herod arrested believers, executed James, the brother of John, and imprisoned Peter. In Iconium, the people of the city were divided at the message of Paul and Barnabas. In Lystra, Paul was stoned to death and left for dead, while in Philippi he was imprisoned for throwing the city into an uproar. Riots erupted in Thessalonica when detractors complained that the disciples had, quote, caused trouble all over the world. At Athens, that great city, some believed Paul's preaching, but when others heard about the resurrection of the dead, we read in Acts 17.32, they sneered. Riots convulsed Ephesus when many adversaries opposed Paul's entourage, and there arose a great disturbance about the way, Acts 19.32. In Jerusalem, of course, only Paul's appeal to his Roman citizenship prevented death by mob violence. But his arrest there sealed his eventual fate. Festus, the Roman governor of Judea under Nero, confessed that he was, quote-unquote, at a loss to know what to do with the prisoner Paul. They did not charge him with any of the crimes I had expected. Instead, they had some points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a, bed, and about a dead man named Jesus, who Paul claimed was alive. The next day, as Paul gave his legal defense, Festus interrupted Paul and screamed, You are out of your mind, Paul. Your great learning is driving you mad. Years later, Peter rebutted charges that he, that he was following, quote, cleverly invented tales, 2 Peter 1.16. And Paul instructed Corinthians who maintain that there's no resurrection of the dead for anyone at all. So, there's hardly anything new about contemporary disbelief in the resurrection. I believe the first believers partly because of their record of disbelief, their own disbelief in that of their detractors. To me, it rings true. They knew that you cannot compel belief in the resurrection. On the one hand, they insisted that the Easter message was, quote, true and reasonable, for the events were not done in a corner. Acts 26, verses 25 and 26. But instead, these, these incidences could be corroborated and verified, at least at some level and for a few years. But on the other hand, this Easter witness amounted to what the Yale historian Yaroslav Pelikan has called, quote, public evidence for a mystery, end quote. And Paul raised the bar about as high as you can when he insisted that no person should believe a lie about the resurrection and that they sure, certainly should not preach a lie, 1 Corinthians 15, 12-19. And if Christ then is not raised, the Christian story is a cruel hoax. Paul died in Rome 
because of that conviction. Thousands more imitated his martyrdom across the next three centuries. And Peter challenged people then and now, Acts 4.19, judge for yourselves. As I looked at my mother's body, it was a short step from grieving her death to fearing my own death. The Easter message is that I should do neither. The first believers described the person of work of Jesus in many ways, but nowhere more succinctly than in Hebrews chapter 2, 14 and 15. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. With this conviction that Christ harrowed hell, early believers anticipated the eventual universal restoration of all things, Acts 3.21, when, in the words of Isaiah's poetry for this week, the Lord Almighty will swallow up death forever. The Sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. Isaiah 25, verse 8. For books this week, I review Holy Roller, Growing Up in the Church of Knockdown, Drag Out, or How I Quit Loving a Blue-Eyed Jesus. The author is Diane Wilson. The publisher, White River Junction, Vermont, Chelsea Green Publishing, 2008, 210 pages. The real name of Diane Wilson's church was Church of Jesus Loves You. Pentecostal to the core, it was not to be confused with half-hearted Baptists, lukewarm Methodists, and certainly not that cult of Mary from Rome. No, these were spirit-filled believers who welcomed visiting evangelists once a month, who knew the power of a tent-meeting revival, and, believe it or not, cast doubt on Brother Dynamite, who handled snakes in his riverside church. <coughs> Welcome to the bayou of Seadrift, Texas, about midway between Corpus Christi and Galveston on the Texas Gulf Coast. <coughs> Diane Wilson grew up in Seadrift as a fourth-generation shrimper and mother of five. Most people know her as the unlikely environmental activist who battled Formosa Plastics for dumping toxic waste into their waters, and the person who founded Code Pink. It's a story told in her 2005 book, An Unreasonable Woman, a true story of shrimpers, politicos, polluters, and the fight for Seadrift, Texas. In this childhood memoir, Holy Roller, told from her perspective as a nine-year-old girl who slept in the same bed with three sisters, she introduces us to her colorful family, a crazy faith subculture, the hard life of sea drifts, shrimpers, crabbers, and oystermen, and hanging the book together, a mysterious double homicide. 
Grandma Rosabelle headed shrimp for two cents a pound. She gave all her money to, quote, a fornicating radio evangelist, end quote, and was a paragon of faith. Chief, Daddy's Daddy, was her favorite. Her mother, Goldie, raised seven kids and never left the city limits until she was 25. Her daddy, Billy Bones, was a chain-smoking backslider and promise-breaker. I couldn't put Holy Roller down, and I finished it in little more than a day. Diane Wilson's command of voice and vernacular are the envy of any author. There's not one false note, not a single overwritten dialogue, not a trace of condescension toward her subjects, nor any sense of exaggeration in these larger-than-life figures. Some critics have compared Wilson's work to Flannery O'Connor and Harper Lee. I was reminded of Rick Bragg's memoirs and the documentary film Searching for Wrong-Eyed Jesus. That film was by director Andrew Douglas, and it features Jim White. In that film, White talks his way through the loneliest and most isolated parts of Florida, Virginia, Louisiana, and Kentucky, the south of abandoned school buses, washboard sandy roads, houses on stilts and swamps, and cars held together with Alabama chrome, that is, duct tape. Among these quirky and desperately poor people, Douglas and White find the struggle between good and evil that is, in fact, every person's story. Says White, I was thinking about these desperate people in their desperate hellfire religion. So they invented a God who's going to whoop ass, basically. I think the saints at Seadrift, Texas, Church of Jesus Love You would understand that, as would Diane Wilson. The name of the book, Holy Roller. For film this week, I review a film from Turkey, the title Times and Winds, from the year 2007. Writer and director Reha Erdem situates his film in a mountainous Turkish village to explore the rhythms of nature and multi-generational family life and multi-generational family strife. He tells the story from the perspective of three adolescent classmates. Omer hates his imam father. He dreams, prays, and plans how he might die, in fact. His best friend Jakob is infatuated with the schoolteacher, and then is enraged when he catches his own father leering at her through a window. Yildiz slaves away like all the women in this, women in this movie, cooking, cleaning, and caring for her baby brother. All the themes of adolescent coming of age emerge here. Birth and death, sex and shame, guilt and longing, fear and confusion, Oedipal love and male violence, nationalism and religion. The imperatives of nature surround everyone with spectacular scenes of mountains and sea, wind and rain, 
a cloudy moon and a solar eclipse, animals mating, birthing, and being butchered. Erdem organizes the film around Islam's five calls to prayer, but in reverse order, as if to accentuate the disorientation of adolescence. Night, evening, afternoon, noon, and at the end of the film, morning. Times and Winds. It's in Turkish with English subtitles. And finally, for Easter Sunday, we've posted a poem by Mary Ann Bernard. The title is simply Resurrection. Long, long, long ago, way before this winter's snow first fell upon these weathered fields, I used to sit and watch and feel and dream of how the spring would be when through the winter's stormy sea she'd raise her green and growing head, her warmth would resurrect the dead. Long before this winter snow, I dreamt of this day's sunny glow and thought somehow my pain would pass with winter's pain and peace like grass would simply grow. But the pain's not gone. It's still as cold and hard and long as lonely pain has ever been. It cuts so deep in fear within. Long before this winter's snow, I ran from pain, looked high and low for some fast way to get around its hurt and cold. I'd have found, if I had looked at what was there, that things don't follow fast or fair, that life goes on and times do change, and grass does grow despite life's pains. Long before this winter's snow, I thought that this day's sunny glow, the smiling children and growing things and flowers bright were brought by spring. Now I know the sun does shine, that children smile, and from the dark cold grime a flower comes, it groans yet sings, and through its pain its peace begins. Resurrection by Mary Ann Bernard. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Easter Sunday, April 12, 2009. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.